0: to see you. Happy New Year. Yeah, wonderful to be here on the first. Start the year off right, get to church. Great to uh, spend this time uh, together. The new year, of course, brings with it all kinds of change, doesn't it? Time to start bringing down the Christmas decorations. Has anyone done that yet? Okay. Um, there's my wife, Sam, if you could take notes. That. I'm kidding. It's my job to bring down the Christmas decorations, and I'm failing dismally. Time to finish off those leftovers, undoubtedly. And you can replace them, of course, with hot cross buns, which you can now buy from Boxing Day. Is that a thing? Is that new to anyone else but me? I'm stoked about it. I love hot cross buns. But um, that seems like a very long lead in to Easter. Of course, the biggest change, though, that we deal with uh, around this time of year is usually circled around resolutions. You know, we resolve to make some kind of change um, to to have a transformation in our lives. Several years ago, my father got a Fitbit for Christmas, you know, the little watch um, which buzzes at you when you do 10,000 steps. Uh, And this was funny on numerous levels, um, primarily because my father is the least active person you have ever met in your life. Um, I'm pretty sure Velcro shoes for adults were made for him. Um, I once saw him watch television. The remote control fell off his stomach. He used another remote control to get that remote control rather than stand up and get it. I guess that's why he got the Fitbit. Anyway, my father, um, he loved this thing. I mean, it really turned him into like an Olympic walker. You know, he was walking around all the place like that. And that really lasted for at least two or three days. Um, It was very, very enthusiastic. But around New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, whatever, when the next time we saw him, I went there. He's there watching the telly. And out of the corner of my eye, as he's sitting there watching television, I see his arm hanging down doing this. As he does it, just count up the steps. I must stipulate everything by saying, my father is the most honest man you've ever met. This is just his body lying for him, you know, just <laughs> coming out of it. Resolutions are funny things. These are these external changes we make, which we hope will produce some kind of um, internal transformation. But what's the problem? They don't work. <laughs> On average, they last eight days. So if you've started, just seven days to go. And you can kick it into touch. With everyone else, they they don't work. Why? Well, they're all based on what we do. If I do this and do that, then I will see something change. If I don't do that or I do that, then I will. It's the outside in. And that's generally not how transformation works. Now, it's worth noting that we don't just see resolutions um, with losing weight and changing things like that. We also do spiritual versions of them. Um, If you're not a Christian with us, uh, let me tell you about the Christian resolutions that we have. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. I'm going to read all the Bible three times in a month. I'm going to go to church every week. Well done. You've made it. In all seriousness, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop looking at that. I'm going to stop speaking like that. I'm going to dot, dot, dot. But all too often, we find ourselves again just butting our heads up against the wall. It might last for a short period of time, but it never sticks. Why? 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 Well, here's what I want to say to you this morning. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you've got planned, what you're thinking about 2023, how you found 2022. I don't know where you're at, but here's what I want to say. Um, And I want to sort of uh, hang my hat on this statement because we're going to talk about it for for the rest of today. But only God gives you transformation that lasts. Only God. Only God gives you not only transformation that lasts, but also the transformation you most desperately need. Now, why is that? Why does it work when God does it? Well, the reason is because God doesn't tell you to change what you do as of primary importance. The transformation God offers is not a change in what you do, but a change in what you see. And you see, it's it's sight, not action that is behind long-lasting transformation, the transformation that lasts across a lifetime, across generations and into eternity. This morning, uh, as Sung just read for us, uh, we're looking at uh, the first section of the first chapter to the book of Philippians. Now, this is a one-off sermon. We're not starting a series in Philippians, so I'm not going to spend too much time in the background and context. Um, But here's what I do want you to notice. Philippians is a book of the Bible, which is a letter written by a man called Paul, the apostle, the great apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament, to an ordinary group of Christians in a place called Philippi in Greece who were Gentile believers. Nothing particularly spectacular about them, ordinary believers. The great apostle Paul to the ordinary believers and I want you to notice in these verses that we look at today just one thing what I want you to notice is how Paul sees what we learn from this letter about how Paul sees people how he sees life and then we're going to spend a bit of time working out how this change of sight doesn't only transform life but it transforms how we view others' lives as well so sight, how we see people, how we see life, and then spend some time um, thinking through what that means for us and, and for others. Does that make sense? So um, keep Philippians chapter 1 uh, open. If you have a Bible, uh, open it there. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one after church. We'd love to give you one. If you do have one and you don't have it, here's a resolution. Bring your Bible. It would be great to do that. Um, great thing to encourage you in. Uh, and all I want to do is look at the, um, to initially look at the first verse. And what I want you to do is I want you to notice as we read out verse 1... What sight Paul offers to himself and the Christians of Philippians, how he sees them. Let me read this for you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get into it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. How does Paul see himself? Well, you see it here. He addresses himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice two things. Paul could have introduced himself in any number of ways that would have been appropriate. The apostle, the church planner, the preacher, the teacher, the great writer, all those things. But none of those is what he does. Instead, here and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, he identifies himself primarily as who he is to Jesus. That's priority number one in the way that he presents himself. Who he is to Jesus. What does he say he is to Jesus? a servant of Christ Jesus. Here's the second thing I want you to know. notice. It's around that word servant. Now, believe it or not, the word that we've got translated here in our, in our translations as servant is not the meaning of the original word. The original word is an ancient Greek word, doulos, and it's actually translated differently. Does anyone know? At 830, we're terrible at this. Does anyone know what that word is actually, literally translated as? Slave. Now, it's been changed for Western sensitivity reasons, baggage around the word slavery. And I want to say the word servant isn't a mistranslation because slaves do serve. The application is the same. But make, make no mistake about it. In the ancient world, a slave and a servant were two completely different things. Listen to me. Completely different. A servant could quit. A servant earned money. A slave? Here's the chief thing you've got to know about slavery. They were owned people. They were owned people. They belonged to others. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, as of the primary means of identifying myself, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In what sense is Paul a slave? In every sense. Body, mind, soul, I belong to him. Okay, so that's how Paul sees himself. Take note now how he sees the Philippians. You see this? To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. What's holiness? Well, holiness is, is, is um, a term that means a something being set apart, separate and dedicated, dedicated to God. Holiness is a term that is referring to the spiritual state of the Philippians before God. They were permanently, eternally holy, separate, set apart and dedicated to God. We know it's eternal because look at chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. They are permanently holy in position spiritually before God. How has it happened? In Christ Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they have been made holy. However, here's two things I want you to notice. Number one, Paul does not identify the Philippians through any number of the ways that he could have. It's not about geography. It's not about demography. It's not about what they've done, how good or how bad they are. The most important thing about them is who they are in relation to Christ. You see that there in the text. The most important thing about them is who they are in relation to Christ. But number two, it's that expression, God's holy people in Christ Jesus. It's a mouthful, isn't it? There is actually a word that has been used in other translations that describes all of that. 1030, what is that word? Does anyone know? Saint. So some of the older translations would say to the saints in Philippi. The reason they don't use that term now in this translation is because the word saint has become terribly misused throughout Christianity. Um, It's very, very unhelpful. Let me just spend a moment explaining it. Um, Unfortunately, over the last few hundred years, or maybe a bit longer than that, over several hundred years, the word saint has come to mean to some denominations of Christianity and to some Christians, super-duper Christian, super-special Christian. There's a hierarchy of Christians, and you ain't it. You're at the bottom. Saints, they're up there. Some people even believe that they have the authority to proclaim someone a saint. They have the authority. And the way you do that is you pray to this person when they're dead, there's a miracle that occurs, and then that's a saint. So some people would say there's one saint in Australia. Have you heard that before? There's one saint. That is a grievous lie. It is untrue. And I don't care what your denomination is. It's wonderful that you're here, but hear me right now. That is not ever, 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 ever what the Bible says. Never, ever. There is not one saint in Australia. How many are there? There's thousands of us. Because what is a saint? You see it here. A saint is someone who is made holy in Christ. What's that a description of? Christians. Christians. We're all saints. We're all made holy. There's no hierarchy of believers in holiness. We're holy, not by our behavior, but by virtue of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Do you see? Do you see that? So take a step backwards with me for a moment. This is just verse 1. I promise we won't spend this much time on every single verse. But understand here the sight that Paul is offering. Paul says, I'm a slave. You are a saint. But don't miss this. He's not saying, I'm a slave. And I'm beneath you. You guys are saints. No, no. He's making a broad statement that applies to all Christians everywhere. He is both a slave and a saint. The Philippian Christians are both slaves and saints. And for us, well, let me help you start 2023 off the best possible way. Who are you, Christian, to God? You are a slave. To be a Christian is to be someone who has had their ownership moved. Everyone is a slave. The Bible tells us before Christ, we've all been slaves to sin, to our sinful nature, to the evil dictator that is our sinful nature and the devil, slaves to sin. But when Christ saves us through the power of his blood on the cross, there is a transfer of ownership. We are now put under the slavery, enslaved to Jesus Christ. But he's not a wicked, evil dictator, but nonetheless, he does own us. We belong to him. You're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You're his property. But also, you are a saint. Right there, there's Saint Pippa. Right there. Not a big deal. Saint Dave. Whatever. On the bottom of your emails, that's an email sign-off, isn't it? St. Blah, blah, blah. Jim, St. Bob, saint whatever your name is. But don't be obsessed with the title. It's like an honorary doctorate. No one uses the term doctor with an honorary doctorate. Don't be obsessed with being a saint because the title is nice. No, no, no. Grab hold of what it means. You have been made holy before God as one of his people through Christ, in Christ. That is who you are. More than that, that is whose you are. That is your identity. And I want to say to you right now, this morning, as a Christian, 2023, the whole year ahead, understanding this, grabbing hold of it, is critical to transformation. It's critical to living as a Christian. It's critical to living life properly. Why? Because who you are to Christ is the single most important thing about you. You know The worldly wisdom that we see around the place, worldly wisdom, (laughs) will say to you, and we hear this all the time, that who you are is a result of what you do. Listen to me, you understand that? Who you are is a result of your accomplishments or your failures. If you succeed in life, you're a success. If you fail, you're a failure. Do this, do that, do this, do that, and then you will become the person, your job, your background, your family, your house, blah, 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 blah. What you do determines who you are. But the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, cuts through that fallacy like a surgeon's blade, skillfully cutting away disease. What does the gospel say about your identity? Who you are is not determined by what you do. What you do is determined by who you are. And who you are is determined by what Jesus has done. Who are you? A saint, a slave. Whose are you? A saint, a slave. That's who you are. And I want to say it's critical to understand that because you will never navigate life wisely if you do not understand the reality of your identity. Do you understand that? Unless you see reality clearly, and that must start with how you view God and yourself, you will never be able to live life Pouring your effort, your energy, your interest, and your activity into the things that truly matter. You won't be able to do it. you will be living blind. Let me uh, illustrate this. One of my sons, Sonny, um, when he was around three years old, he loved to play hide-and-seek. And And the way he would do it was uh, very unique. Uh, He would uh, go into the living room. He'd go, Dad, Dad, play. So he'd go in. I'd do the camp then. And ready or not, here I come. I'd walk into the room. And every time, he was just, boom, right there. It was like he chose the most visible part of the room to sit in. Boom, sitting on the couch or sitting next to the TV. Yet Sonny was utterly convinced he was hidden. Why? <laughs> Thankfully, I hate hide-and-go-seek, so I was happy to let him keep going on with that. He still does it, don't tell him. <laughs> Sonny thought he couldn't be seen because he couldn't see. But what's the reality? Well, reality has no time for opinion. <laughs> Reality has no time for what you think of it. Reality is what it is. Sonny could be seen. And if he continued to live life denying reality, if he continued to live life believing that shutting his eyes meant he was invisible, well, he's going to have a big problem as he gets older and older and older, isn't he? <laughs> My dear friends, do you understand? How do you expect to live life wisely? How do you expect to have the spiritual growth you most desire, to defeat the sin in your life that entangles and bogs you down, to see the, the, the maturity in your own life, to be evangelistically fruitful, to live the life that God has designed for you to live. If you do not see yourself clearly, who are you, a slave? I obey my master. Who are you, a saint? I've been made holy forever by my master. I will not lose what I have so then the question becomes if that's who we are that's whose we are what does life look like as a result of that reality what does Paul tell us in Philippians about how we should live our lives what living wisely as a result of understanding what life is all about what does Paul tell us about what we should do well, Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's so practical and beautiful. Can I just, if you haven't read it, uh, get ready. It's just this amazing, amazing book. There's much in here that's practical about Christian living. Um, but there's, there's one area in particular I want us to focus on this morning. And I, I'm doing it deliberately because I want us to focus on it, not just for today, but for 2023. We see it right here. Look at verse 3, uh, 4, and 5. Let me read this for you, and I want to see if you can catch it. The question is, how does Paul tell us to live the light of understand the reality. Listen, listen to what's said in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What should be one of the major focuses of our lives, this side of heaven? One of the major focuses of our lives is people who can truly see. It is that we partner in the gospel. It's not a very cool phrase, is it? We partner in the gospel. And I want to say to you that I am convinced, not just much smarter people than me, that this term, this expression, more than this human expression, the application, the understanding, the outworking of this in reality is at the very core to the transformed life, the very core to living life the way that God wants you to live. It's Critically important for all of us. So let me just spend a little bit of time defining it and then thinking through how it plays itself out. Partnering the gospel, gospel partnership. Well, what is partnership? Um, partnership, uh, you know, outside of anything spiritual, uh, is an agreement between two parties who are um, seeking a common outcome. You got that? Two parties in agreement, minimum, two parties, are seeking a common outcome. Now, being partners with someone is different than being a member, for example, of something. Maybe at Christmas it could be. This has happened to me before. You got a membership to the gym. Okay, that's what a backhanded compliment that is. Okay, hey, have a treadmill and a Jenny Craig subscription. That's a hard thing to get. The man shake. Anyway, so whatever the case, imagine you get that. You go, you sign up, you become a member of your gym. You get the flash card, the swipe card. You get the tour. You do all of that. What are you now? You're a member. Now, what happens if you go every single day for the rest of your life? What are you? A member. But what if, like many of us, you never go again? What are you? A member. It's not determined by your participation. Your membership to the gym is only determined by your payment. That's it. Gospel partnership is very different to that. Partnership is different to that. Partnership springs from the same Greek word as the word for participation. Is that helpful? Participation. What does that imply, participation? Activity. Not stationary, not static. Action. So what we're learning here, Christians are called to be actively involved, to participate, to bond together, to participate with a common goal. What's the common goal? You see it here. We are partners in the gospel. This world um, has so many things wrong with it. It's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? And as a church, um, it's so easy to focus our attention on things of the world, feeding the homeless, Running charitable activities and goods, giving money to to people in need, these are all wonderful things to do. Praise God for them. It's no wonder 80% of charities in the world are Christian. But that is not our primary calling. Partnership in the gospel is not a focus only on the here and now, but the eternal. It's taking the eternal into the here and now and putting it as of utmost priority. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead. He it to the heavens. He rules and reigns over the world today so that whoever may repent and believe in him can be saved. Amen. That's the gospel. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. That's the gospel. And that... Gospel is what you and I are called to participate in. We're already partners, in a sense, in the fact that we've all been saved by it, if you are indeed a Christian here today. We are partners in the fact that we share that, that incredible unity between ourselves of thicker than family blood, the blood of Jesus that bonds us together. But it's more than that, do you see? The expression here in Philippians specifically is not just... Participation in the gospel stationary, it's actually participation in the advancement of the gospel, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the gospel. So, what does that mean? Well, there's, there's two major outworkings of this gospel partnership. Let me let me show you what they are. The first one um, is that we are to partner together in the gospel for the advancement of the gospel in our own lives. God has given us each other to partner together for each other, to pray for one another like Paul does. Paul doesn't pray to the saints. He prays for the saints to give generously of our money, to serve one another. It's deeper than friendship. Friendship is fickle. It comes and goes. It's based on our emotions. Partnership is eternal. It's deeper than friendship. And let me ask you who here has been served and loved by another Christian? Has anyone here been served by another Christian? I wish I was a centipede. Loving one another is a matter of primary importance. You and I are to partner together for the mutual maturity of each other. And that's why coming to church is such an important thing. God has specifically gifted you for us. So not to be here is to steal from us. But make no mistake, not to be here is also to rob yourself. Because God has specifically gifted us, each other, for one another. We need each other. My problems, did not, my problems did not disappear when I became a Christian. They multiplied. We need each other. And that's why God has given us each other. Now that is, number one, advancement of the gospel. Advancement in our own lives that we mature on and on and on. But number two, and this is the primary context and meaning of it here in Philippians, is the advancement of the gospel in the lives, the hearts, the souls of people who do not know Jesus. That we, you and I, are better together. We want to see the coast run for Christ. You want to see the people you know come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour. We need one another to partner each other. Now, Philippians actually contains for us an incredible illustration of exactly that. So if you've got the chapter open in front of you, have a look at it. Philippians all the way through chapter 1. I want to point out to you this illustration of evangelism, partnership, in action, uh, that is just, uh, I want to say, both shocking, uh, but also incredibly stimulating. Have a look at it here. Um, Let me give you a little bit more context. Paul, the guy writing the letter, is writing from prison. He's in Rome. He's imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. Okay? While he's there, um, the ancient Roman prisons, he's chained up, not just in shackles, but he's shackled to a soldier, to a prison guard, to make sure he wouldn't escape. Okay? That's what life is like for Paul. Now, if you and I are in prison for preaching the gospel, what would our letters to other Christians contain, if they were honest? Well, I whinge when the Wi-Fi goes down, okay? let alone if I was in prison for Christ. But what does Paul say? Listen to verse 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Hey, Julius, what shift have you got? Oh, I'm chained to Paul. Oh! just won't shut up. (laughs) Paul changed this guy. He does not view it as a punishment of God. He does not view it as an opportunity for winch. He views it as an opportunity for evangelism. And not just that. He's seen some of them won to Christ. You see, there's been an advancement in the gospel and where he is. Now, it's worth saying, of course, Paul is not an ordinary man. He's not. He's God's apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? He is, uh, has specific gifts for that specific time uh, uh, in history. Uh, he's undoubtedly behind Jesus, uh, the second most influential human being who has ever lived, the great preacher, the great pastor, the great writer. Not many of us could do what he did, and I want to say that's true. But this is what's captivating, striking, and shocking because his imprisonment is not only for the benefit of the palace guards around him. Look at verse 14. And I want to flag for you, this is one of the most, I reckon, surface level, confusing verses in the entire Bible. I'll explain that in a moment. Look what happens in verse 14. Because of my chains, he writes, Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Did you hear that? Because of my chains, more people want to evangelize. What? Why is that confusing? Well, every study of evangelical Christians, and we are an evangelical church, every study of evangelical Christians done all around the world, and certainly my own personal experience around the world, um, will verify that right at the center of um, Christianity, Christians, the lives of Christians, there's a paradox, a paradox. 90% of us believe, convicted, that we need to spend our lives telling people about Jesus, that this is what we should be doing, this is a good thing to do, we want to do it. 90%. Raise your hand. No, don't do that. 90%. But how many actually do it? 10% and below. Now, that's not just true here. It's true everywhere. It might be higher here, it might be lower there, but we have this huge paradox most of us want to do it, most of us don't do it. We've got a conviction and action contradiction going on here. Why? Why is there something we want to do but we don't do? There's one answer above all others that I want to propose is true for you, most likely, and it is fear. Is that right? It is for me, fear. Now, fear comes out in many different forms. Of course, fear of not knowing what to say, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of destroying a relationship. Fear of, of um, misrepresenting Jesus. Fear of looking stupid. Fear of looking foolish. Fear that no matter what you say, this person is so far gone, they can't be one to it, so why bother? Does that strike true? That's my Monday. How does that strike true for you? Fear. So, how is it possible that Paul's imprisonment and proclamation while in prison leads to, look what it says. How does the verse finish? To the end of fear. It leads them to proclaim the gospel without fear. What do we have to do to live like that? What course do we have to run? Let's do it. Well, my friends, the answer is not found in what we do. The answer right here in verse 14 is there for us. Is found in what we see, or rather, who we see. Have a look at verse 14 again. Who is it that the brothers and sisters have become more confident in due to Paul's proclamation while in prison? Not Paul. Not themselves. Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. In the Lord. in, In Jesus as God. Why? Because as they saw Paul's powerful proclamation of the gospel, even whilst imprisoned, and as they saw that despite all rational and logical means, people heard the good news and were getting converted. That despite fierce persecution, the church was growing and growing and growing. What did they realize they were seeing? they realised they were not seeing the power of an of a, of a eloquent evangelist in Paul or the persuasiveness of a brilliant man like Paul. No, to see, to witness what they were seeing meant that they were seeing the reality of the hand of the invisible God. The invisible God who reaches into the hearts, the stony hearts of people everywhere, to bring them to Christ, to bring them to new life, performing miracles in their lives, to bring them from death to life, from darkness to light. It was God bringing people to himself. They saw the reality of gospel partnership, my friends. Don't miss this. Listen. Gospel partnership is not only, or even primarily, you and me together trying to make the most of it. Gospel partnership has at its very core and centre partnership with jesus he is our partner that's what it means to be in christ verse one chapter two verse one we are united with christ being like-minded in spirit we partner together with the advancement of the gospel we we give it our best shout absolutely but my dear friends we are not on our own our goals are only our goals because they were God's goals. We pursue what we pursue only because God pursues it. We are partnered with God, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see how that changes everything? There's, there was an old man um, who, who lived in a, a suburb uh, in Sydney all of his life. Walked up and down the street every day. Um, he knew every shop, every, everything. One day he was walking up the street and he saw a young boy dressed in the local school uniform standing on the curbside, you know, on the curbside of, of the street. And being a friendly guy, local man, he, he said to the boy, you waiting for the bus, mate? And the, the guy said, yes, yes I am. He goes, well, mate, no point waiting there. Bus stops 600 metres away. You've got three minutes. You need to get moving. And the, the young boy said, uh, okay. And stayed completely still. old man... Thought this must something something wrong with this kid. So he just said the exact same thing louder Oi, you waiting for the bus? What are you doing? You've got to get moving. Okay. Boy, he didn't move. Eventually, the old man got furious. Millennials, Gen Z, Y, not in my day. That happened. I realized I started doing that when I turned 40. It's amazing. Suit yourself. You're, you're the one who will be late. And he stormed off. He hadn't even gone four meters when he heard the sound of a bus pulling up and as the doors opened. He turned around, mouth agape, saw the young boy getting on the bus. But before the door shut, the boy turned around and said, Oh, mister, sorry, I forgot to mention, the bus driver's my father. What did the boy know that the man didn't? Reality. He knew that no matter where he stood, the bus would stop. He knew that no matter what he was doing, the bus would stop. Why? Because he knew he could trust in his father. Trust in his father. What does it mean for us to partner with God in evangelism? It means everything. It means everything. We do not have to fear what people will say to us or do to us, because God controls the universe. He controls how people respond. We don't have to obsess over saying the right thing with the right package and the right and do I have every answer to every single question? Because it's God's gospel, not ours. We can have confidence that no matter what we do, no matter what the response is, it is not in vain. God may save the person we're speaking to, or He may not. it's His choice. But the responsibility of their response is not on us, it's on Him. So when people reject us, dismiss us, patronize us, put up with us, we do not lose heart, we persevere. Aren't you glad someone did for you? We persevere. Our spouses, who show no interest. I know that some of you here. Our children who veer away. Our siblings, our parents, strangers, neighbours, friends. We stop reading life by the reactions of the lost. And instead we read life by the word of God who is sovereignly in control of all things. The God of the universe is our partner in this endeavour and he can change anyone's heart and I've got to say he loves to save people that's what he does that's what he always has done that's what he keeps doing Do you know this year at, at this church we saw 56 adults become Christians 56 116 youth I'd use my calculator to add those up that's 172 people then I divided it by 52 that's three a week how does that happen partnership not solo flying not Soul trader partnership. It happens usually by one Christian knowing a non-Christian and witnessing, maybe stumbling, maybe bumbling, but faithfully about their faith. They may talk to them, explain the gospel, or they may bring them or invite them to something where they meet other Christians. Or it may be that someone meets someone who invites them and they come, they don't know them, but they meet people. Other people have been praying we put things on. We do things. Why do we do the things that we do? Partnership. And yet our own efforts on our own would be hopeless. It only works because God is our partner. On the surface, one-to-one evangelism, one-to-one inviting, bringing people. Inviting someone tomorrow to Summerfest, uh, you know, whatever. It seems so innocuous and small and insignificant sometimes, doesn't it? Why do I bother? And yet this is exactly how the kingdom of God has always been grown. Let me finish by telling you about Lydia. Lydia, um, with a group of friends on Saturdays, uh, would go um, to, a, to a river outside, just outside her city, and there with her friends, she would sit around and talk about God and philosophy and all type of things. Now, one Saturday, Lydia um, was sitting there when a, a group of people that they didn't know, none of, no one in their group knew, came and, and started to talk to them. They heard them talk about religion, they, they began to have the conversation. Now, on the surface, if you and I were to walk past Lydia and these people, just chatting about it, um, we would have thought it was probably a picnic. <laughs> you know, we would have paid no attention whatsoever. We would have walked by, most likely, and completely missed them. I'll tell you one thing for sure. There certainly would have been nothing about what we saw that would help us understand that what we were witnessing at that very moment was one of the most pivotal events in human history. Why? Well, because Lydia is chatting to a guy called Silas, a guy called Luke, a guy called Timothy, and of course a guy called Paul. The town she's outside of is Philippi. The year is around 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Lydia was an independent businesswoman in fashion, a Gentile, not Jewish. And yet that very morning, she woke up lost, but went went to bed, saved. She heard about Jesus and God opened her heart and she became a Christian. Now, there's nothing particularly special about Lydia. People get converted all the time. However, Lydia was the first Christian convert in Europe. The very first. Not long afterwards, she told her family and they were converted, the first Christian family in Europe. Acts chapter 16 is where we're getting this from. Guess who else is then converted? A slave. And who else? A prison jailer. What happens to Paul? He's imprisoned again. Christianity spread throughout Europe. Went to off the mainland to Britain, to America, Canada, New Zealand, and eventually Australia. How did it begin? with a group of people, chatting to another group of people, and one woman, Lydia, coming to know Jesus and telling the people that she knew what she'd been told. That is how the gospel has spread over the world. And I guarantee you, if you are a Christian here today, that is in some way or another how you're a Christian. So what can you do? Well, we can't be Paul. It's unlikely any of us will have that impact. Not unlikely, impossible. We are not going to have the impact of the Apostle Paul. He was a man with a special gift at a special time in history. But we can all be Lydia. How? By seeing life properly. By grabbing reality for what it is. And living life wisely as a result of the reality that we see. Of seeing eternal things have been of utmost importance. Of pouring our effort and energy not to the things that will rust and, and fade and spoil but using the lives that we have in partnership with one another and partnership with God to see the coast, the state, the country, and the world one for Christ. Now that's living, isn't it? That's the transformed life. Most people who become Christians know a Christian. The people most likely to become Christians this year are the people you already know. So will you partner in this? Will you participate? Summer Fest tomorrow, Summer Series every week in January, the Life Series over Term One, every single Sunday at church. You representing Jesus through your community, through the people that you know. This is how God calls his people to himself. And this is what a transformed life looks like in action. Amen. What a thing to do. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in bringing us and drawing us to yourself, but not only that, in allowing us to participate actively in your great mission to save the world. We pray for revival here on the Central Coast, revival in New South Wales, in Australia, on the planet. Lord, the only hope we have is the gospel. And help us be men and women who grow through the gospel, who rejoice in the gospel, who partner in the gospel, and proclaim the gospel faithfully so that others will be saved. We pray all of this and bring all of these things before you in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.